At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Thursday, December 21st. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump at a ceremony celebrating himself, well, celebrating the tax bill, but that was more subtext. It was kind of um, a celebration of self. Said this about the tax bill which was the greatest piece of legislation that he got Congress to pass to further bolster his historic legacy. And and by the way, I mentioned AT&T, but many companies have come forward and saying they're so happy and they're going to be doing similar announcements. We're going to see something that's going to be very special. We're bringing the entrepreneur back into this country. We're getting rid of all the knots and all the ties, and we're going to see. You're going to see. You're going to see what happens. And ultimately, what does it mean? It means jobs, 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 jobs. But that's not how it works. Not how it works, works, works. No economist thinks that jobs are created when companies get more money. Jobs are created when companies see a demand for their products or services and have to put out more product and services at a price that exceeds the cost of capital and labor. Now, the tax bill is stimulus. It will be injecting a lot of money into the economy. Some of that money will go to consumers. That will spur demand. But companies have been holding on to a lot of money, and they're not even investing what they have. Actually, not just a lot of money, $2.3 trillion in reserves. It's the biggest pile of uninvested cash that's ever been held. They don't need the money. Well, they want the money. But what I mean is, the problem with hiring is not that companies lack the money to do it. One proof of that last statement is that companies are, in fact, hiring at record rates right now, almost all. Every economist says that the U.S. is at or near full employment. And you know what? If we go beyond full employment, that is actually bad for the economy in some ways. It will probably cause inflation to go up. And if you get a 3% raise, but we have 3% inflation, it's not a real raise, is it? Look, there is slack in the labor market. The unemployment number is not the end-all, be-all of all the job numbers. And this bill would cause wages to rise. Hooray. But if wages do rise, they will do so modestly. Modestly, modestly, modestly. And then you heard in the beginning of that clip the AT&T reference. It is true. AT&T will give bonuses to workers. Wells Fargo will also give bonuses to workers. Oh, by the way, two weeks ago, Trump issued a tough-talking tweet against Wells Fargo and the fines they face from regulators. Fines and penalties against Wells Fargo Bank, he tweeted, for their bad acts against their customers and others will not be dropped, as has been incorrectly reported. CNN reports Trump's comments about an ongoing enforcement action are unusual. Yeah, have you met the guy? So there's Wells Fargo facing uh, tens of millions of dollars in fines for alleged mortgage abuses, could be more. So why not give some bonuses? And the president can cite that as offering proof of what he's been saying all along. Winds up being a good investment. 
Same with AT&T. Trump was fuming about their proposed merger with Time Warner. It's over a $100 billion deal. If they could spend less than 1% of that on bonuses and get the merger to go, it's worth it for them. Smart move. And in Trump's world, just know this. The AT&T bonuses, that will stand for how every company is reacting to this tax plan. He will cite that dozens of times. He will say, look at what the private sector is doing. Look at how all the workers are benefiting. I mean, AT&T just gave everyone a $1,000 bonus. AT&T will be the tax policy. That's all you need to know about it. Trump will say it again and again and again. Just like the Indiana Carrier Plant was the one company that proved everything that Trump had been saying all along about offshoring. Just as Jose Garcia Zarate was the only immigrant in America. Our immigrants, Zarate, our multinational conglomerates, that'd be Carrier, our tax beneficiary, that's AT&T. Our policy towards women, well, that's Ivanka. Our black outreach, that's Omarosa. Oh, wait, hold on. Nope, gonna go with this guy. A friend of mine, a very, very special man, Tim Scott. Tim, I'd like you to say a few words. Tim, you stand right here next to me. You did a great job for me, which makes sense, since I made so much money off this tax bill. That's how it works. On the show today, I'm done talking. I've got this tongue thing going on, the lingual tingle, I call it. So uh, going to get some help in the spiel. But first, a veteran of the Defense Department and the executive branch who's been watching Russia for years, he has some recommendations. Chief among them, let's get serious. Michael Carpenter up next. For all of my adult life, Russia, or as it was known then, the Soviet Union, has assumed to be a threat. There was a two or three year lull where it was more of a question mark than a threat. And now here we are. It is a threat again. There is a weird nature to the threat, though. I find the most threatening part of Russia is that the United States, or at least this administration, is not taking it seriously. So what can we do? How can actors within the government, affiliated with the government, formerly within the government, get the United States to guard against Vladimir Putin in Russia? An explanation is offered in Foreign Affairs, The Current Issue. It is co-authored by Joe Biden, former vice president, and Michael Carpenter, senior director of the Penn Biden Center and the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense from 2015 through 2017. Michael Carpenter is with me. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So it seems to me that, yes, of course, Russia is a threat. That doesn't seem to me. That's an acknowledgement. But here's the thing that seems to me, that there are a lot of things in the world that could be a threat if we stop paying attention to them. Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb or Boko Haram or, I don't know, Basque separatists. But the point is we stay vigilant and the threat is contained, except with Russia, the highest reaches of the administration. The eye has been taken off the ball. And therefore, it seems that Russia is uh, much more of a virulent threat than it need be. Do you think I'm getting it right? Yeah, I think you are getting it right. You know, I think we face this interesting duality right now where actually senior members of the administration, cabinet-level officials, acknowledge that Russia is one of the key threats that our nation faces, that Russia is acting aggressively both in it, on its periphery uh, in Western Europe and here in the United States. And yet, the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, 
fails to acknowledge a basic fact that everyone else understands, which is that Russia interfered in our last election and that Russia is trying to undermine our democracy. And so with this duality, we are hamstrung in being able to respond properly to the threat that Russia poses. So you make recommendations in your piece, recommendations like working better with social media to fight back against bots and uh, scurrilous intrusions from Russian hackers, working with uh, the American and international banking system. So I want to ask you about the consequences of that, but what are some other key recommendations that you and the vice president are making? Well, I think the key recommendations we make are of two various types. First, when Russia acts aggressively, whether it's in Ukraine, Georgia, or here in the United States, we have to impose costs on Russia so that over the long run, Russia sees that the costs of its aggressive actions outweigh the benefits. But then the second thing is we need to defend ourselves and protect our institutions better. And so when it comes to social media, we make recommendations about how to do that, how to reduce the impact of Russian propaganda. But I think the number one thing that we think needs to be done today is to protect ourselves from Russia's corrupt influence. And that includes tightening up our campaign finance laws and preventing ways that Russia uses currently for laundering money and seeking to gain influence over American, but also more broadly, Western political and economic elites. Now, would you say if there were just about any other president, Hillary Clinton or or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or just about any mainstream politician other than Trump, would you even have to be making these recommendations? Let's say that it was a universe where Russia interfered or tried to interfere as much as they did. Do you think that that anyone but Trump, there would be a question that this is the sort of thing that we should be doing and in fact that there that we would be doing? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think you're actually right. I think we would not be having this conversation if any other candidate had won in the Republican primary or on the Democratic side. Even if Russia had helped them win the election, I think they would have acknowledged the interference and they would have taken appropriate action against Russia, but we haven't seen that. So we have, you, you agree with uh, your former boss there, Joe Biden, but we have uh, all the congressional Democrats, most of the congressional Republicans, this side of Dana Rohrbacher, agreeing with you. And it seems like the senators agree with you. And of course, the lifetime appointees and the agencies seem to be doing a great job to fight against Russia. But absent the president and the uh, administration's approval of this, how much are their actions hamstrung? How much are they not doing simply by dint of the fact that the guy at the top has shown no interest in this? Well, I think it's actually hamstrung a lot of institutions. And so, for example, when Secretary Tillerson over at the State Department refuses to accept money that is programmed and appropriated by Congress for countering Russian propaganda, and by the way, also for countering ISIS propaganda. I mean, you see this sort of bizarre incoherence in our foreign policy. Why wouldn't you accept a pot of money that has been designated for fighting Russian propaganda? It makes no sense. Unless, of course, you're trying to please your boss, who thinks that there is no such thing as Russian propaganda. So, yeah, we find ourselves in this bizarre world where the president shares a different view of Russia 
than uh, just about anybody else in the administration outside of maybe a handful of his core advisors in the West Wing. Right. So there are these ripple effects. I mean, you write about, I didn't even know this one organization existed. I I know American fact-checking sites, but there's the Ukrainian version. Maybe that gets ignored, or maybe that gets a little ignored. And maybe a bunch of propaganda that would have been rebutted doesn't get rebutted. There, There can be effects of that order that we might not even see until, you know, there's a potential coup or the natives of a region are asked, do we accept uh, Russian interlopers or do we not? Well, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think the effect is actually more pernicious than that, because what we've seen with regards to Ukraine, which you just brought up, is that, you know, the previous administration, for whatever feelings we had in terms of supporting Ukraine, and, you know, I would have argued we should have armed Ukraine in the last administration, but at least we were paying attention each and every day, and senior members of the administration, like John Kerry or my boss, Joe Biden, were calling Ukraine's leaders and holding their feet to the fire on establishing independent anti-corruption institutions, on undertaking reforms to clean up the economy and get it to grow again. And we find ourselves today where, for example, Ukraine has largely been forgotten. And so it's not any malicious action that is coming from the U.S. administration, but it's this sort of neglect, which is no longer can be characterized as benign, because we see that corruption is coming back to the fore in Ukraine, and America seems to be silent. There's no one talking about it. There's no one criticizing the authorities. There's no one insisting that they meet the pledges that we laid out for them when we gave them assistance. And so that's an example of how the implementation of policy is affected by this president and this administration in a very negative way and one which, frankly, aids Russia's aims in the region. It seems to me in international diplomacy, other than a flat-out war or a coup, all you can hope to do, especially in working with democratic institutions, is point them in the right direction. And maybe it doesn't show up in this administration or the next, but having the right policy and trying to point a uh, country in the right direction can eventually work out. Look at the FARC rebels in Colombia. If there was a president along the line, a four-term or eight-term president, who was pro-FARC or didn't want to fund the Colombian government, you know, that rebellion might still be going on. For me, at least, that is the biggest failing of their vision of how they defend our national security, that it is a sort of timid, inward-looking vision of how to protect America's interests rather than an engaged internationalist one that seeks to get out there in the world and shape outcomes to the best of our ability, which, again, is limited, but still to the best of our abilities. And when you withdraw from agreements like TTIP, the Trans-Atlantic Trade Partnership, or TPP in uh, on the Pacific Rim, well, then you certainly lose the ability to set the standards for trade and engage other nations economically. Yeah, and this isn't about Russia, but who do you think is going to step into that mall if not China? I mean, it's so short-sighted. Well, it's obvious. Uh, China was, in fact, China was asking us privately whether they could join TPP at one point in the future. And so they were already positioning themselves to sort of fall behind U.S. leadership on trade in East Asia. Now they're gloating, they're happy, they're the only ones who are leading the pack at this point. And, And that's a direct result of us withdrawing from this agreement. From your professional perspective, how important and potent is the Magnitsky Act? 
The Magnitsky Act is a very powerful tool. It's one of many. It's not as powerful, frankly, I think, as the sectoral sanctions that we applied in the last administration to the defense, energy, and financial sectors in Russia. But Magnitsky is very powerful because it goes after individuals engaged in corrupt acts or gross violations of human rights. And so because of its global nature, it scares people in Russia who have perpetrated either corrupt crimes or human rights crimes because they never know whether they might find themselves on that list and all of a sudden their assets in the West are sanctioned and their ability to travel to the West is forbidden. And so it's a powerful tool and we've seen as more countries have adopted it, like Lithuania or Canada or Estonia, that you know people not just in the Kremlin but in the upper political and business elite in Russia have gotten quite scared. Yeah, it seems that it must be potent if uh, Natalia Vetselnitskaya is meeting with Trump Jr. It, it does seem that this isn't just uh, some ancillary annoyance to Putin. Uh, maybe it's just that's what's been reported on extensively, but it seems to be a pretty big burr in his saddle, no? Absolutely. And, you know, the thing to remember about the whole Magnitsky case is that it would have been very easy for the Russian authorities to just say that there was a crime committed, that an innocent man died in jail. They were going to look into it. They were going to find who was responsible. They were going to prosecute, and it would be the end of the story. And in fact, that's actually what then-President Medvedev initially said. But then he was walked back. Why? Likely because this enormous financial heist reached into the upper echelons of the Kremlin elite. And you couldn't really unravel that onion, go after just a few of them, because they were all interconnected. Putin took it very personally, and hence the desire to have it repealed here in the United States and any number of different lobbying efforts to go after it. But I will say this on Veselnitskaya, because I do think that the ultimate objective there was to test the waters on the Magnitsky Act. And then if she had succeeded with that, and this is the way these intelligence services operate, they would have asked for more. So in my view, the meeting in Trump Tower was an attempt to see if there was any interest in repealing the Magnitsky Act as a prelude to reducing other sanctions that were probably more powerful. Does Vladimir Putin want to do much more than confuse and undermine Western institutions? Like, once that happens, does he have, I don't know, an endgame or some marching orders or anything in his heart more nefarious than staying out of his way and making his uh, personal enrichment easier? Well, look, he'll take uh, sowing chaos and division, uh, and he'll call it a win, because that keeps these countries off of Russia's doorstep. It prevents us from supporting the sovereignty of Russia's neighbors like Georgia or Ukraine and gives him a free hand to continue to manipulate the corrupt networks that resulted in his rise to power and enable him to preside over one of the most corrupt systems in the world. What's Putin's Achilles heel? His Achilles heel is exactly that. This is a system that is riven with corruption. It is absolutely pervasive within Russia. And if we start to expose how that system is run, which is basically at the expense of the Russian citizen or taxpayer, then it does start to have an effect. I mean, let's not forget that in the winter of 2011 going on 2012, there were massive protests in Russia not just in Moscow, but in cities across the country. And those protesters were motivated by the fact that they thought the Duma election, the parliamentary election the previous fall, had been rigged, but also because 
of corruption within the elite. And this is Putin's Achilles heel. If we press on this a little bit harder, this uh, has the potential to bring down this corrupt system. If Putin dies tomorrow, slips and falls on a patch of ice outside the Kremlin, nothing nefarious, it happens. Uh, How much does America's Russia problem go away? I frankly personally don't think that the problem goes away at all. I think that the system is structured in such a way that it's not just Putin, but it's all the Kremlin insiders who are all, or most of them at least, are KGB vets. They've spent their life growing up in the Soviet intelligence system. They see the West as their adversary, and they all practice the same corrupt methods as Putin. And so he goes away. I think the system remains the same. But you can hope that one day there is a fracture within the elite, and some of those, especially oligarchs who made their money in the 90s, who currently actually want rule of law to protect their assets, will turn against this corrupt system and demand something slightly more accountable with slightly better rule of law. But that's, you know, that's something that we can hope for in the future, but I don't think it's right around the corner. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Great to be with you. Michael Carpenter is a senior director of the Penn Biden Center and served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense from 2015 to 2017. He's co-authored with uh, Joseph R. Biden Jr. an article in Foreign Affairs, How to Stand Up to the Kremlin Defending Democracy Against Its Enemies. Thanks again. Thanks. And now the spiel. You know, I've been well, not tongue-tied, but tongue-impaired. Not, I'm just not feeling at full tongue. I'm not in my best tongue. I'm not living my best tongue life. Maybe it's bothering you. I hope not. Thank you for sticking by me during this journey. So in order to give my tongue a little bit of a rest, I have called upon some friends to help. You may know them as Siri, Alexa, or Hal. I just call them my robot pals. So I wanted to give you my full-throated thoughts on a topic that I am quite passionate about, and one that's that's hard when you have a tongue ailment, and I found one. CNBC reports, cereal demand helps General Mills beat sales estimate. Cereal. Okay, you guys take it. Wall Street Journal reports, General Mills gets boost from growth in cereal and snacks. Can we get a little more international flavor with my robot pals, please? Cereal. There have been better times for cereal. The stays crispy in milk, post-war period. The even the milk turns chocolatey 70s. The part of this nutritious breakfast 80s. And do you remember when it was breakfast in America? But now it is hard for cereal to get much of a toehold. Everyone is either lactose intolerant or gluten-free. And a carbohydrate you eat in milk does thrive in these circumstances. So, big cereal knows. It has to reinvent itself. Last year, Kellogg's opened a pop-up shop in Times Square. There Sandra de Capua, a cereal artist, laid out a new creation for a new generation. It's a really cool combination. So the Fruit Loops are obviously really fruity and pretty sweet. Um, the Passion Fruit Jam is tangy and sort of like, you get like that bite and that acidic in the Passion Fruit Jam. Marshmallows are, have that textural, like sort of ethereal thing. And then the lime zest right on top, uh, a little bitter, but super fresh and like brings it back, you know, to like that fruit, but doesn't give it any more sweetness. Lime zest on Fruit Loops. 
Can I get? I need a little more hysterical. Okay, look, this is gonna hurt my mouth, but I gotta say it how it needs to be said. Lime zest on Fruit Loops? That doesn't make sense. Just connect people with flavors they like. Alfred Morris of the Dallas Cowboys posted a video on Instagram of himself holding a box of cereal and dancing. Quote, I was just genuinely happy. End quote. That's what Morris said about banana, nut, Cheerios, making a comeback. But the cereal companies have gone in another direction. They think that they should take their cereals and turn them into snacks. At the same time, snacks are looking to turn themselves into cereal. Oreos, cereal, is back. Yes, that beloved or, to parents, bemoaned cereal of the 1990s, Oreos, O's, are back again, for breakfast. This is not great, but what is really horrible is not Oreos becoming cereal, it's cereal becoming Oreos, because the company that makes Oreos announced a new flavor of Oreos, Fruit Pebbles. Yuck. Gross. Disgusting. But, if you think Fruit Pebble Oreos are bad, and they are, Oreos invented three new flavors, Cherry Cola, Pina Colada, and Kettle Corn. It's pronounced Pina Colada. It's pronounced horrible. Cherry Cola, Pina Colada, and Kettle Corn Oreos, or, as they were known in R&D, Wrong Oreo, Unholy Oreo, There Is No God, Oreo. I think, but really, this has been me the whole time, I've just had the robots doing my talking, so I... I think, taking a cookie, a good, solid cookie, into a place it hasn't been before, makes sense. But, try a cookie in your ice cream, or a cookie in a shake. But turning something that's not a cookie, into a cookie, there lies disaster. And it's the same with cereal. Crazy new flavors or rebooting crazy old flavors, seems a losing game. I'm not saying don't innovate but stick to the tried-and-true cereal palette, and I think you just might find some delights. And here's a warning, cereal companies, if I see pina colada cherries in my grocery aisle, I, all of us, am going to be pissed. Thank you, and tomorrow, BB-8, on how to make a delicious egg white omelet. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by... Holy goodness on one side and frosting on the other. That's what makes just producer Pierre Bianamay lightly sweet. Mary Wilson promises the taste of real sugar and cinnamon in every bite. Steve Lichtai, in his role as executive producer of Slate Podcasts, would like to apologize and clarify the lightly sweet and sugar and cinnamon remarks. They were inappropriate from a standpoint of professionalism, gender, and blood sugar. The gist. If you like cookies, you'll love cookie gist. Oomperoo-deperoo-deperoo, and thanks for listening. Our Mary said we'd get paid for this. We're Union.